I mean, just right out the gate, I gotta say, not the most creatively named movie and sequel, you know? Like, are there more in this franchise? Does it go alien, aliens, even more aliens, too fast, too alien? I mean, where's the limit? You don't know that? Hey, hey, and welcome back to episode 10 of You Don't Know That, the podcast. It's me, your girl, Ashley. I didn't like that. That was way too cool. Just whatever. It's episode 10. Welcome back. And welcome to our season one finale. Hell yeah. We did it, guys. I mean, I did it, but you listened. So go team. Today, as you might have guessed from the intro, we are talking double feature, baby, and we are doing the movie Alien, followed by its super creatively named sequel, Aliens. So, obviously, there is an alien in the first one, and then his friend shows up in time for the second movie. Mm Mm-hmm. I have no idea who's in this movie, other than the titular alien, obviously. And I can't think of a single iconic quote. Um, as for time period, if it's aliens, I'm guessing it's like, well, it could either be like not so distant future, like slightly futuristic, super future, or now. So... <laughs> That's a that's a wide guess, but definitely not the past, right? And um it could also be that we, the human race aka earthlings go to space and meet an alien and then later his friend or they come to earth. I'm going to go with they come to earth and it's like present day time for whenever it was filmed, which was in the 80s. Yeah, I'm going to lock that in. 1980s alien invasion, Earthside, unknown actors, maybe. And there's just one alien in the first one. And then they think they beat him. And then, oh no, they look up at the sky and it's way more ships. And all of Earth is being invaded. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds plausible, right? Um, gosh, it's so much harder when I haven't even seen a reference to this anywhere. It's not like Jurassic Park or Die Hard. Oh, uh, one of my coworkers did say that I'd have a stomach ache after watching this movie. And both he and I are lactose intolerant so i'm guessing it was something with that maybe because otherwise i don't know i can't even fathom what that joke would be about plus like we've talked about (laughs) dairy-free substitutes a lot so maybe there's like a comedic relief side character that has to like eat cheese or something (laughs) um yeah that is all I have, which is literally nothing but a wild guess and hoping that I'm somewhat right. But weirder things have happened, so it's possible. And with that, 
I'm going to go enjoy a nice little double feature, and I'll be right back. Ashley's out researching things, and she'll be back in one, two, three, four. Well, didn't quite get that one right, did I? I mean, takes place on Earth? Nope. Takes place in the 80s? Nope. My guess about the stomach ache? Nope. Man, the only thing I got kind of right was that there is one alien in the first one and multiple aliens in the second one. And to be fair, while my lactose intolerant guess was wrong, I mean, turns out that the blood of the AI character in these movies was actually milk. I'm gonna give myself half points for that one. I mean, anyone sitting here in my empty house disagree? No? Half points it is, baby! But seriously, yeah, the movie takes place in space and super in the future, so my bad. Also, quick shout out to Sigourney Weaver, didn't realize that she was in this, but just want to say, in Alien, she was the queen of suggesting that breaking quarantine might be a bad idea, and she knew that shit in 1979, so, hmm, just saying. For those of you that might not know what this movie is about, uh, essentially, Alien was written by Dan O'Bannon and came out, like I said, in 1979. And it follows the crew of this commercial spaceship called the Nostromo in the year 2122. So definitely not 1980. And they respond to a distress signal and discover that the signal comes from a derelict alien ship. And they think it's a good fucking idea to go inside. They go inside. They lose communication with the folks that are back on the ship. And inside, there's just this, like, huge chamber of eggs, like, really big eggs. And then they go, hey, we're going to touch these eggs. And you're sitting there, and you're like, don't fucking touch the eggs. Don't do it. So then they do. And then, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it and you don't want to know, maybe don't listen to this. But uh, maybe I also shouldn't turn away listeners, but whatever. Anyway, spoiler alert. But they touch the egg, and then this creature latches out. and then grips onto the face of one of the crew members and he like passes out. So then they have to carry him back to the ship. And then Sigourney Weaver's character, Ripley is what she's known as, but she was like, no, you can't come on. This breaks our quarantine procedures. And they're like, no, let us back. And she's like, I can't, I'm sorry. And then this AI who turns out to be kind of a dick lets them on because turns out he wants to keep the alien for himself. And so they let him on and they're trying to cut this face hugger off of the guy's face and turns out the alien leaks like corrosive acid blood so they can't do that and then all of a sudden the face hugger dies and the crew member has slight memory loss and thinks he's okay but is he okay well i don't know maybe we'll talk about what happens next a little bit later but let's just say turns out crew wasn't quite done with the alien also known as the xenomorph a super deadly, super aggressive extraterrestrial that may or may not now be loose on their ship. Also, the real star of the first movie, besides Sigourney Weaver, uh, was Jones the Cat, this just cute little orange baby that was actually four cats who are very well-trained cats that they kind of exchanged out in different scenes because they were all good at different tricks. But yeah, Jones, 10 out of 10. Oscar-worthy performance from Jones the Cat slash Jones the Cats. 
Meanwhile, the second movie, Aliens, went in a completely different direction. And we'll talk about the plot and how that movie came to be a little bit later. But for now, we're going to focus on the first one, okay? When Alien came out, it was revolutionary. I mean, it set the groundwork for a wildly successful franchise. Because to answer a question I had earlier, there are six movies currently within the Alien franchise, not to mention the Alien vs. Predator movies, which I don't know enough about to get into, but there was Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, again, not so great with the naming, but Alien Resurrection, Prometheus, and Alien Covenant, the last of which came out in 2017. So 1979 through 2017, people still care about this franchise. So let's talk about why. Alien was directed by Ridley Scott and has stood the test of time largely due to their use of practical effects. The team behind Alien was comprised of artists that were revolutionary in their field, each one brilliant within their own specific niche, and Ridley Scott really knew how to let each one shine. So let's start with the actual Alien itself. The brain behind the design of the alien was H.R. Giger, a Swiss surrealist painter with a background in architecture and industrial design. His aesthetic is so unique that there's actually a word for it. Giger-esque, which, when you look up the definition, contains the phrase nightmarish biochemical imagery. So, it's a look. Giger was approached in 1977 by Scott and O'Bannon after they had seen Giger's recently published book, Necronomicon which was a collection of paintings. Necrom numbers 4 and 5 were actually used as the basis of the xenomorph design, and they kept it pretty authentic to Giger's original vision, especially when you consider that Necrom's number 4 and 5 were created for an art exhibit and not created to be used in film. The amount of detail that they managed to keep was truly impressive, so if you have a moment, I definitely recommend googling Necrom number 5 by H.R. Giger or just checking out our Instagram page, You Don't Know Pod, because by the time this episode's up, I'll have posted it for you. You're welcome. Anyway, Ridley Scott loved Giger's work, and he wanted to keep the alien as true to Giger's original painting as possible. Giger's blend of sci-fi and abstract industrialism fit in with Scott's used future vision, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a second. But Scott actually liked Giger's paintings so much that he brought Giger in to design Everything that had to do with the alien, the landscape, the spacecraft, the eggs, everything. Additionally, he had everything, quote, earthly, like the Nostromo, remaining with a different team run by Ron Cobb. And I'll talk about that again in a little bit. But essentially, Scott kept two separate brains working on the two separate worlds, earthly and alien, in order to truly keep the aesthetics very distinct and separate. In order to keep the alien suit authentic, Giger largely crafted the suit himself, even using a real human skull in the head, as well as numerous other real bones. But the real beauty of Giger's design isn't the materials he used, but rather the functionality of the design itself. We, the viewers, understand that the alien is a parasite. There's no point in the movie where a character needs to explicitly say it to the camera. We understand how it works by literally watching its stages of evolution all of which were managed to be integrated into vital plot points. From the eggs, to the facehugger, to the iconic stomach scene, which now we're about to talk about. 
Here is the point in the film where my coworker meant that I would have a stomach ache. And man oh man, y'all, he was right. This scene was horrifying. But to really appreciate it, we need to rewind a little bit and talk about the set, primarily the Nostromo. The design of the interior of the Nostromo was actually a direct reaction to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which, shocker, am I right? I haven't actually seen. But apparently, in 2001, the interior of the ship is sleek and clean. And according to Ridley Scott, too sleek and too clean. It didn't look like anybody actually lived there, or if they did, they were the world's cleanest humans. Contrast that with Star Wars, which showed more of the utility of the space and how humans would actually inhabit it, and you've got two very different aesthetics. Alien took the idea that Star Wars started, the idea of a used future, and they took it even further. The interior of the Nostromo was designed based off the interiors of actual B-52s, which are planes, if you don't know, and submarines. Essentially, enclosed spaces where humans rely on technology in order to live. The focus on the set design could be summarized in one word, really. Utility. The brain behind the set design was Ron Cobb, who describes his own design aesthetic as a frustrated engineer. Cobb even went so far as to design Semiotic Standard, a series of icons that were used as signage on the ship that you can kind of see above the doorways and on compartments behind the actors. And Semiotic not only has continued throughout the additional Alien movies, but they create a space that, while futuristic, is still relatable to the audience back in 1979. Similar to the Alien, we understand how the ship works without necessarily needing it to be explicitly said to us, or without necessarily explicitly understanding the complex internal mechanisms of space travel. By normalizing the world of the Nostromo as much as possible, the crew seems more relatable and more human even though these people are living in a future far, far removed from ours. This is even more true in the moments where they are eating just before the chestburster scene. The normalcy of this crew just having a moment to eat dinner is such a stark contrast to what happens next that the audience is in this false lull of comfort of something familiar, watching a group eat dinner together. And the juxtaposition between that and what happens next makes the next scene all the more horrifying. So, the actual alien that bursts out was also designed by Giger. Giger's design for the chestburster is based off of a 1944 triptych by Francis Bacon called Three Studies for Figures at the Base of a Crucifixion. And if you're thinking, God damn it, Ashley, I just Googled the last one. Do I need to Google this one too? I say, yeah, you can. Or again, check out our Instagram, baby, at you don't know pod. That's you don't know pod. Anyway, since the monster was tiny, it needed to make a good entrance. Scott actually kept the design of the chestburster away from much of the cast. The actor, John Hurt, was really the only one that knew what was going to happen. And as he was getting rigged up for the scene, the rest of the cast was actually taken off of the set. And in this particular scene, Hurt only has his head and arms above the table, and then his whole lower half is sitting in a deck chair underneath. And the fake chest cavity that was left on top of the table was stuffed with parts the crew had gotten from a butcher shop two days earlier. According to Sigourney Weaver, the set smelled absolutely atrocious. Also, because of the mess of the scene, they were going to film it in one take with three cameras, each of which were covered with clear tarps. The crew knew essentially that something was going to appear in this scene, but didn't know exactly what it was going to be. The script had three words to describe everything that went down, which was just, and I quote, 
this thing emerges. So on the first try, the chestburster couldn't quite break through the t-shirt, so they had to cut the shirt a little bit. In the reset after this false start, the actors thought they had an idea of what would happen and then moved in closer for the second attempt. This was, in technical terms, a big, big mistake. They done goofed. The actors were unaware of the small explosives around the exit point, and they were unaware of how much blood and guts were actually stuffed into Hurt's fake chest cavity. Also, they didn't know about the crew members underneath the table who had six gallons of compressed blood ready to go to spray on the cast. Now, if you've seen this scene and you're like, there's no way that there are six gallons of blood that spray everywhere, you're right. Eventually, they decided that six gallons was a little excessive and edited most of it out. But a huge squirt hit Victoria Cartwright right in the face, and she fell over, which is very much still in the film and kind of hilarious when you know what happened. Therefore, the horror that you see on the actor's face in the chestburster moment is very genuine, which I think makes that scene all the more impactful. And overall, all of this background information into the alien, all the thought that went behind it, all the design into the ship, the alien, its world, its larva, how it gives birth, is so much more impressive when you learn that in Alien, the xenomorph only has four minutes of screen time and doesn't make its first appearance until about an hour into the film. Which then begs the question, why put in all of that work? Well, according to Giger, I always wanted my alien to be a very beautiful thing. Something aesthetic. A monster isn't just something disgusting. It can have a kind of beauty. It can move gracefully. It can be sinuous. In order to capture the grace of the alien that Giger was looking for, they needed a good actor to go inside the suit. Originally, they tried to bring in dancers and circus performers, and none of them were nailing it. And then, there was a true moment of fate when the casting director spotted this tall, thin man in a pub. And that man's name was Balaji Badejo, a Nigerian student who was in London pursuing a career in graphic design. Badejo was perfect. And Badejo committed to the part, taking Tai Chi and choreography classes. He had to spend long days in this latex suit with little to no vision, little to no air, and a tail that prevented him from sitting down. And everyone says that Badejo was pure class about it the entire time. After the film's success, he actually moved back to Nigeria to continue his graphic design career. And Alien was the only film he ever appeared in, but his performance is iconic. In Aliens, the role of the xenomorph fell to Tom Woodruff, a renowned creature actor. And that's not the only thing that changed in the second movie, so let's talk about Aliens. Now, Aliens, the second one, was written by James Cameron and continues Sigourney Weaver's characters, like Ark. So Ellen Ripley is rescued, spoiler alert, she lives in the first one, (laughs) Um, is rescued 57 years later by a salvage team who finds her in hypersleep. So she's been asleep for the last 57 years. So she wakes up, finds out the moon that they had just been on for the entire first movie is now being colonized by people. And Ripley is over here like, listen, dumbasses, there was hundreds and hundreds of eggs on the ship and one alien did all this damage. Can you imagine how many all of the eggs did? 
And they were like, we don't know what you're talking about. It's been 57 years. We've had no problems. Like everything's fine. Cool your jets. So then, of course, shortly after that conversation, they lose contact with all of the colonists on the moon. And they're like, hey, Ripley, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> um, oh, you're going to need your help. But don't worry. It's going to be totally safe. We're sending you in with all of these Marines. And so you meet this like ragtag group of space marines who are like we're gonna shoot all the aliens and it'll be fine like firepower so they go in they find of course the colony is completely deserted they find makeshift barricades battle signs but no bodies they find two live face huggers in a jar and a traumatized super traumatized young girl nicknamed newt who's the only survivor who like ripley takes care of and kind of becomes this like mother-daughter bond because since Ripley was asleep for 57 years her daughter died and she like never got to see her which is really dark but anyway so the marines find the crew and they're underneath this fusion-powered atmosphere processing station so they head there go down underneath and what do they find all of the colonists are cocooned each one serving as an incubator for the alien, much like the one cast member did in the first alien. And then they come across a crew member, and yet again, we have a chest burster moment. But rather than watch in horror as it skitters away, they unleash hell. And then in return, like all of these aliens start descending from the ceiling. And then it becomes a matter of who's going to get out and who's not. But I won't spoil that for you. Aliens was written by James Cameron, who is now known for Titanic and Avatar fame, but at the time was relatively unknown. In the early 80s, Cameron had just cast Arnold Schwarzenegger to be in Terminator, but Schwarzenegger was under a contractual obligation to go film a sequel to Conan the Barbarian, which, again, what a shocker, haven't seen. Didn't even know that Conan had a sequel, or that Schwarzenegger was in it, but that's for another time. Cameron was then stuck waiting around for nine months, which wasn't enough time for him to film anything, but it was enough time for Cameron to write something. So he took on the project of writing Aliens. Cameron really stressed that Aliens was not a remake of Alien. He did not want to make a cheap copy with one or two things changed. And rather, he wanted to make a continuation. He was a fan of the first movie, and he knew that a lot of people were fans of the first movie and wanted to do them justice. To avoid any allegations that he was doing anything other than continuing the story, he changed the genre completely so that the first movie could never be mistaken for the second. Alien is more about claustrophobia, escape, and horror. And Cameron wrote Aliens as a, quote, dark action piece with a very warm human center. It's about personal bonding under pressure, a story of the people people in a situation and how they react, and their extremes of emotion. And it's true, Aliens has a lot more with the ensemble cast, while still focusing on Ripley, than the first movie. It went from a horror film to a sci-fi action film, a complete 180 between the first and the second, which has earned Aliens the title of possibly the best sequel of all time. However, Cameron didn't finish writing the script before filming on Terminator began. He only wrote about an act and a half. But Fox loved what he was doing so much that they did the unthinkable and said that they would wait for him. And they did. 
They also offered him that if Terminator, quote, went well, that they'd let Cameron direct. And I mean, I know that I said I haven't seen Terminator, but even I know it definitely met the threshold of, quote, going well. So Cameron got to write and direct. And it also did well, winning its own fair share of awards. And for many people, Aliens is more liked than the original. And that's likely due to the more human nature of the story. Overall, Alien and Aliens is an interesting study in creating a universe and telling a story in two completely different ways. Despite the next evolution of Aliens being wildly different than the original version, fans love both. And I think it's just a nice reminder that change isn't necessarily always a bad thing. But one thing stays consistent across both movies. Those mother effers just won't die. There is a scene in the end of Aliens where Ripley is in this like big mechanical suit, literally throwing the alien off of the ship. And I am sitting here two movies in, just rooting with everything in my being for it to just die already. (laughs) These suckers persevere. And hey, so should you. (laughs) That was dumb. (laughs) Whatever. Anyway, that wraps this one up. So I don't know about y'all, but I'm going to go check all the crevices in my house and make sure that there are no xenomorphs in there. But before I do, I just wanted to say a quick thank you for listening to this first season of the podcast. I genuinely had no idea what I was doing and still have no idea what I'm doing, but at least I'm figuring out that I enjoy it. So thank you. Thanks for going along on this ride of me losing my mind slowly over a very weird time in human history. It's also not lost on me that by the time this episode comes out, the election will have been literally yesterday. And I have no idea how it's going to go, but whew, that was crazy, right? Can you guys believe it? Wow, that thing happened. Whoa. <laughs> but for real, it's a weird time. It's going to be a weird time in the week that you're listening to this. And then the holidays are going to still be a weird time. So since no episodes will be released during that period, I just want to say to be sure to take some time for yourself. Do something dumb that makes you happy. Maybe it's a podcast. Maybe it's learning a new instrument. Maybe it's not feeling the need to be productive and just spending time with your loved ones. Whatever it is, take care of yourself. And I'll see you in 2021 with some new episodes. Until then, see you next time. Keep on staying positive and keep on testing negative. Stay safe. Thanks, guys.